Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. Good morning. Today I'm joined by Dr. Rafael Fonseca, who is a professor of medicine and the interim executive director of the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. Dr. Fonseca, thank you for taking the time to join us today on Real World Talk. Oh, no, thank you for the opportunity. The pleasure is mine, and I look forward to our conversation. Likewise. So let's just kick off with a little bit of background, not only about you, but the disease that you really focus on, multiple myeloma. You are a renowned expert on myeloma and just generally in the oncology space. For our listeners that may not be so familiar with multiple myeloma, can you just give us a high-level overview of the disease and why it is so difficult to track and treat? Indeed, and I will try to frame our discussion about myeloma in a way that it subsequently feeds some of the conversations we're going to have about the application of real-world data. But let's start first by what is it that we mean when we say multiple myeloma. So this is a cancer or a neoplasm from those cells that normally would produce immunoglobulins, so-called plasma cells. And there's a whole spectrum of how the cells can become abnormal. There's a benign variant of this that we call the monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. But then as patients go on through the various stages of progression, this can become malignant in nature. And usually when that happens, the growth is such that those cells start creating symptoms and clinical problems for the person with the diagnosis. So the cells grow and they grow excessively inside the bone marrow space. So patients can present with abnormalities in their bone structure. The cells can erode into the bone. The cells can produce proteins that we use as markers for monitoring the disease and diagnosing the disease. But some of these proteins, particularly the smaller fragments, something we call the light chains, are small enough that they can come down into the urine and create problems leading to renal failure. And also, as the cells grow, the patients can experience fatigue because they will develop anemia as a consequence of just literally the real estate of the bone marrow being taken up by the cells. And in some extreme situations, too, as the cells are just ferociously attacking the bone structure, as they do so, you can think of our bones as a coral structure, if you may. So as they do so, they release a calcium that our bones contain. So patients might have elevated levels of blood calcium, which is also problematic. So that's how it presents itself. Mayo Clinic have a center that specializes in this, and this is at all the Mayo Clinic campuses in Minnesota and Florida and in Arizona. I am based in Arizona. And we deal with this diagnosis and provide recommendations for treatment and management to patients. Now, this is a disease that has seen just dramatic improvements in our ability to control it. When I was in training now over 20 years ago, our goal was essentially palliative in nature. You just control the disease for a while, and our goals were something we used to call plateau, which means just induce enough of a response that things seem to be under control. Whereas nowadays, we have the ability to induce incredibly deep responses, some of which are very long-lasting, and I hold the belief that a small fraction of those patients now are actually being cured from their disease. So much progress has occurred. This progress primarily because of the availability of new treatments, not because myeloma doctors are smarter, but we do have a whole range of new treatments, and I've even lost track of how many approvals we have now from the FDA, over 15 approvals over the last 10 years, and we're just starting to get our heads together and try to decide, okay, what is the best approach 
as you think about the long-term management and the long-term treatment for patients with multiple myeloma. I would say that for background is probably just an overview of what we have for multiple myeloma. And there are some challenges in that it's not a condition that for most patients is considered curable. That is different. Patients with lymphoma, we can do that with some of the more aggressive forms of lymphoma, less commonly with myeloma. But of course, it's great progress. On the positive side, this is a human cancer that has the best, hands down, no question, biomarkers. And that's just because of how nature works, because myeloma cells produce these abnormal proteins. We know we can make a diagnosis, and we have several ways in which we can measure the proteins that are produced by the myeloma cells. We can actually sequence those proteins, and we can tell that by the amino acid sequence who that protein belongs to. And it can be so specific that if a patient has subclonal disease, we can even find more than one protein that belongs to different clones. So we're very fortunate in that regard that we can integrate that into the management of our patients. So a lot of progress, still an unmet medical need at large, because unfortunately, the majority of patients ultimately progress. But my hope and our aspiration is as we continue to understand better how to connect and combine treatments and what approaches we should take that a greater number of patients will fall into this cure category. Great. Thank you for that overview. Just noting your experience in the field, being in it for over 20 years, the improvements you've been a part of since the early 90s to today are just really impressive. And everything you've written on the topic has been helpful to the field. So thank you for that contribution. And once again, for being with us here today. No, thank you. My pleasure. Turning towards something both related to real-world data, but also something that you've written about in the past, which is the optimal way of finding the right treatment for patients to have a successful outcome. So for really patients with any sort of cancer, each line of therapy is associated with lower response rates, underscoring the need to find that most optimal treatment. Myeloma in particular is a cancer where the drug or new drugs are being approved at a rapid rate, as you noted. What role do you think real-world data can play in determining them to find that most optimal treatment regimen in a disease like myeloma or something similar? Sure. There's a lot to unpack there, but let me just walk us through the various steps in which I will try to explain how real-world data can play a, a significant role in this. As you noted, we've seen a large number of improvements and, as I mentioned, FDA approvals for newer medications. And all of this has come because of just heroic international efforts to get together teams that can conduct phase three clinical trials. But the field of myeloma has moved at such a rapid pace that by the time these trials are being completed, it is not infrequent for the questions to be considered semi-obsolete. And the classic description that you're changing the tire as the car is going is apt for what we are seeing in the myeloma field. Now, there is no question, and I think this is clearly documented and it's well understood, that the best way to make recommendations and to decide on the worth of the various treatments remains in us doing those phase three randomized trials. That goes without saying, we understand that. But when you start looking at the permutations of the different options that are available for patients, when you start asking yourself questions such as those related to sequencing, just mathematically, it becomes impossible to think that we will have a system, no matter how well-funded, no matter how well-supported, that will be able to design and develop all the clinical trials that will be necessary to make recommendations regarding the best management of multiple myeloma. In medicine, there are two worlds, right? So there's the ideal world, the world that we live in when we read from textbooks. And then there is the real world, the world where things happen and where empirical observations become critical important. And we'll talk a little bit more about this for myeloma. So we need to marry those two things to better understand 
what actually really happens. So for example, I'd make a pause after this. We have phase three trials that tell us that a particular combination is better than an other combination. And a lot of them are three drugs versus two drugs. This is of course drug agnostic. It doesn't matter which drugs we're talking about. And then you ask yourself the question, well, the trial is positive. Let's assume it's well designed. Let's assume it just really provides the information that you would request from a phase three and that you're comfortable with the design. You know, you're getting the answer the trial was designed to address. But then you ask yourself, patients don't live in a cross-sectional world where there is just one clinical trial. And even though those clinical trials might describe what has happened before and sometimes describe and sometimes can follow up for what happens later, we don't really know. So how do we position that trial in the sequence, various treatment options, and then various patients and their tumor's characteristics becomes a challenge. And I think as we start learning more and more about these trials, we can do a lot of testing, empirical testing, if you may, from the data that is coming back from real-world databases. So I think those are some of the ways in which we are trying to, again, land this in reality, because I wish we all lived in a world where phase three trials could be completed in one day and we had the answers and we had phase three trials for every patient situation, but we just don't. And we should advocate for more and we should advocate for more funding. But as you do that, you have to realize that there is a reality of how much you can actually do. Now, let me use a specific example in the field of multiple myeloma, which is highly relevant. I think right now is one of the most pressing questions we have. In 2020, a patient that goes through the first phases of treatment and completes a stem cell transplant and recovers after stem cell transplant can come back to us and say, what do I do next? And our standard recommendation is maintenance with an oral medication, lenalidomide. And with this, we have significantly improved the duration of disease control and also significantly improved overall survival. But then when you ask yourself the next question, okay, what clinical trials do we have for patients who are experiencing relapse? Some of the best clinical trials also use lenalidomide as one of their combinations. But then if you ask yourself the question, okay, what fraction of those patients in those trials had been previously exposed to lenalidomide? The answer is that it varies. And we have some subgroup analysis that might tell you it seems like it doesn't matter in this situation or this other, but it just stands to reason that as you go through the various treatment phases of multiple myeloma, you're going to start creating a resistance to some of those medications. So those are some of the questions that we can test and we can really apply some of the data sets that we have now with real world data to see if the actual performance in the clinical practice really mirrors what we're seeing in the clinical trials. Really interesting. Looking a little bit forward, just as real world data does advance, how do you think it will be used to influence those treatment decisions at really the point of care to ensure the patient is receiving the best treatment or the proper treatment first? Touched a little bit upon that, but if we could dig in a little bit further, that'd be great. Yes, of course. No, happy to. We want to first see how things play out in the real world. And there's a few questions that are also agnostic to drugs that I know we can talk to about from the multiple myeloma perspective. And it would be as follows. We could say, okay, if I show you, let me again go with a hypothetical. I show you a clinical trial that drugs A plus B C is better than drugs A plus B. I always say that a reasonable person in the audience could raise a hand and say, wait a minute, you need to show me that A plus B plus C is better than A plus B followed by treatment by C, which your clinical trial was not designed to do. And I think that's obviously a fair question. But the reality is that we're learning, for instance, from real world data, that there might not be a future opportunity to use C. What we have seen is that as you look at myeloma patients, as they go through the various lines of treatment, you should not assume that because if a patient completes a line of treatment, they will have an opportunity to test the next treatment. And what we have seen is with very large data sets, and we have done some work in this regard, if you ask yourself, 
myself the question of the patients who complete an X line of therapy, how many of them complete the next one? And the data I have, for instance, is very compelling for patients who are not going through transplant, that with every line of therapy, you start losing 50% of the patients. Now, why does that happen? Well, sometimes patients don't want to get more treatment or patients complete their lives and then pass away from other reasons. But you can very quickly see as you go into second and third and fourth line of treatment, patients cannot do that because of disease progression and death associated with the disease. So now I say that theoretically, it would be incumbent on people who say, oh, you need to test A plus B plus C, that is better than A plus B followed by C, to test that because there's a significant attrition rate between the various lines of treatment. So if you have to design a clinical trial that would test that, and you would go through the premise of saying, well, we're going to see what happens in the real world or intention to treat, you would have to count all that fraction of patients that is lost through attrition, through all of those steps. And actually, that has led me to the conclusion that for multiple myeloma, you have to put your best treatments forward. And you should not reserve treatments for later in case you need a treatment down the line, you know, the so-called approach of keep your powder dry. People have done that in other cancers. And I think there's some data that validates some of this practice in breast cancer. And again, I'd be interested, it's not my area of expertise, but I'd be interested to hear more what they're doing in breast cancer, where they sequence drugs one after another. But in myeloma, first of all, most of our treatments are combinations. There's no question. And as soon as a drug becomes active, and if it's in a different class than the other drugs, you add it to that combination. So we're going now to, you know, induction regimens that may have four drugs. And most of the relapse refractory setting, we use three drugs combined. And that's pretty standard for most patients. And the reason you do that is because you don't want to expose a patient to that risk of attrition down the line. So I use an analogy, and I hope it's helpful. I, I ask colleagues when I present on this topic, I say, is this strategy for the treatment of myeloma the strategy that you would have as a coach for baseball versus soccer? In soccer, you put your best players since game one. So if you're lucky enough to have Messi in your soccer team, he's going to play from game one, and you don't sit him and save him for the finals. Whereas in baseball, half of the team is composed of pitchers, and oftentimes they don't play for several games. They might come and play at a later game, and that makes sense. That's more the sequencing, the breast cancer approach. And I think all the clinical trials really point to the notion that in myeloma, you got to put your best foot forward. I would argue that certainly for the first time you treat a patient and also for the first relapse, very deep responses is associated with very durable disease control and better outcomes. So again, you have to go with your best combination and you have to think about this attrition. And that is one thing that is just essentially impossible with current models to consider that in the setting of clinical trials. Thank you for that response. And great way to frame it too. Very timely with the World Series as it's proceeding mm-hmm. <laughs> at this very moment. Thank you for that. Shifting to the actual cost of care. This is something that you've studied as well and written on the topic. In one particular study, you even analyzed claims data from various sources. Can you tell us how you were able to look at and be able to correlate disease progression with financial burden using the, that claims data? Yes. And this is one of the other things that it's so interesting and fascinating from my perspective from the real world data, because not only you can marry what we have for clinical information and then how we combine things for outcomes, but then we can also check against the claims, right? And the claims would tell you in many ways what's happening. And I always say there there is an aspect of claims that is often underappreciated. When someone is paying a dollar, there's a lot of extra attention being paid, right? So, and we made this like this in the clinical practice because we have to get our prior authorizations, et cetera. But you know, when an insurance company is paying, there's there's a pretty high level certainty that there's a transaction that has occurred. It's, it's in that way, it's very reliable information. So what we have done is we have asked ourselves the question, what does it mean to a patient, for instance, to progress versus not? 
And these are things, again, that you cannot ask with the standard constructs that we have for clinical trials. So we have one paper that was published recently, and we ask ourselves the question, what is more expensive to be under control or to progress for multiple myeloma? Now, it would seem at first glance somewhat, if you're living for longer and you're getting more treatment, it's just has to be more expensive. And what we have found out is that this is far more complex than that. By the way, I should say that for this publications that will make reference to, I've always employed a you know, collaborative effort and co-authorship with economists because of the subject matter expertise they need to bring to this matter. So what we found, like for instance, in one study, we looked at the cost of progression. And what we found is that it's more costly to progress than it is to stay under control. Even though if you look at the data, there is a greater cost of drug utilization if you're under control. So in other words, you spend more in medications to keep the disease under control, but you end up spending more in other things. And the net total is greater if you actually progress. And as you look at this through the various lines of therapy, it's very clear the main component for that is hospitalization. So when we start thinking about creating a value structure, and you can project that in multiple ways, but if you think about it from what's the value for patients, what is the value for a health system and for payers, I have always argued that the approach has to be holistic. The approach cannot be based on the unit cost of whatever you're doing, whether that's the cost of a medication, the cost of a procedure or a hospitalization, but you really have to look at the total health expenditure associated with one of your strategies. So we documented this actually quite clearly for patients with multiple myeloma who were experiencing relapse. And again, the bottom line was, yes, you spend more in drugs, but your net cost is less because you spend less in hospital stays. Now, that is just money. I'm not bringing into the equation imponderable factors such as what is the value and there's no dollar sign you can assign to the fact that you're not spending time in the hospital, that you're with family members, that you don't have pain associated with a fracture because of a myeloma progression, that you have greater hope that you're going to be able to attend a wedding or the birth of a grandchild, etc. So that is just exclusively looking at those dollar signs. So when we talk about interventions and when we think about what we're doing for myeloma patients, I think we have to think with that sort of comprehensive and holistic approach approach, as I say, for what value might mean, because otherwise the conversations saying it's incomplete would be an understatement. It's at best incomplete, I would say misleading. And we can think about it in different ways, right? If you were to ask someone your cost of living expenses and you just projected the monthly payment for a mortgage or for rent, but you don't bring into factor how many years you're paying, what are your other expenses, who else is contributing, what is the net benefit of that? Then we take that for granted. That's a normal conversation we have in our daily lives for, again, simple things like paying for housing and deciding what level of housing we want to have personally. But we don't do that as we think about these medications and interventions. And most of the conversation and the discussion, I'm afraid to say, goes to, okay, this is what the drug costs. A lot of times, by the way, they just cite the list price. There's no consideration in many of the models and many of the statements and publications regarding some of the discounts that come in the form of rebates associated with this. So it really has to be far more deep than just staying at that very superficial level. We have looked at this data in detail in other groups have worked as well too. For me, there are two key observations that need to be kept in mind as we think about some of this value. Number one is what does it mean for the patient? So what does it mean for someone in their day-to-day life, how much expense they're going to be incurring because of a new drug? And number two is what does it mean for a system? Now, if you think of a system, you have to think big, and that's what you do with real-world data and what you do with large data sets. And there's some very interesting data from IQVIA that looked at the increased net and the increased spending in drugs over the last 10 years. And what they found is that the net was approximately $40. And that was total for the 10 years. 
per capita. Now you might say, boy, that can't be true. And, but I haven't seen a good refutation to this data set. And what happens is that if you divide the cost of all drugs amongst all the lives that are covered, and of course, if you have an insurance company, for instance, that has millions of lives covered, all of this gets diluted and you get close to that number. It just turns out that, of course, a lot of that depends on the greater use of generic medications. So it's great. The system works in that way. So to say that there's a huge bump on the fees that will be need to pay by members to a program in the form of what will become their insurance bill really cannot be significantly attributed to that increasing in drug spending. Now, for patients, I think that's a bigger story because what we need to do is we need to find ways so that patients can have access to the medications they need. This is actually, by the way, and maybe a little bit off topic, this is very simple for patients who have commercial insurance because they can get direct pay assistance, so their contribution becomes minimized. And it's much harder for patients who have government-based insurance because of some of the regulations of how pay assistance can be provided. And part of this is to disincentivize the use of more expensive medications. But I can tell you, if you're having, let's say, kidney cancer and you need an expensive oral medication, that's where the greater cost of the new medication sits. It's not like you're going to abuse that. There's a large number of steps that have to be taken to secure the medication, to get it approved. So I don't know that there is much value to that financial incentive against its use by saying you as a patient are going to have to be responsible for that 20%. I think that can be fixed. I think that's more of a policy issue. So anyway, just getting back to your first question, I think value has to be considered at large and not at the unit level. And that's something I think real world data will help quite a bit. And of course, not only because of the numbers you show with insurance, the claims results, but also because of their integration with the clinical outcomes that we see with real world data. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. A lot of mentions of data there, studies from the one like IQVIA that you did study and cite there. In addition to real-world data at its face, do you believe that the increased access to data overall will accelerate the move towards value-based care models in our current system of care? It is possible. I think if this value-based models and frameworks contain the transparency so that everyone can make the informed decisions, who could argue against that? So I think it should be stated that everyone wants to maximize values. That's just a basic sort of decent approach to everything we do in our world. So Obviously, there's forces against this where someone could benefit more from a deviation from that. But in general, let's start with the premise that everyone should try to maximize value. Now, the challenge with that, though, is you want to make sure, A, you have the transparency and B, that is consistent really with best practices. I have to say that I have seen somewhat limited engagement by physician experts in some of these conversations. And it's been driven more by either physicians who are policy advocates or sometimes from the payer side. It starts from a legitimate position of concern. Are we paying too much? for certain things. And you can see how some of these value-based frameworks have sometimes been detrimental, in my opinion, to access to some of the novel medications in health systems where a decision of go, no go is based on the work of some of these policy groups. Now, I think this is a very complex question. There's no easy answers to this, but I do believe that in general, some of these things actually play out in the post-approval market world that we live in and that with real-world data. So let me give you an example. There was a drug that was approved for multiple myeloma called panobinostat. And this panobinostat was a pill medication. And if you trace its history, it was like a fairy tale 
development of a drug. It came from a bench-to-bedside observation and how HDACs would be so useful in combination with prednisone inhibitors, really elegant translational and basic studies. Then they go on to develop a phase three trial, which becomes frankly positive. And honestly, if this was an area of medicine or an area of cancer where there were no other treatments, this would be like a major victory. It turns out the medication is effective, but it was toxic. And it was toxic transient toxicity, the gastrointestinal toxicity, but transient. And the drug just flunked. The drug flunked because we had other medications that would be better. And there was a very limited number of patients that were really good candidates for this. I personally, despite having a practice that it's almost 100% focused on myeloma, I don't think I ever prescribed it more than three or four times. The drug was sold, and I'm not sure if, if it really has any future at this moment. And the reality is that sort of the real world and the interpretation of the clinical trial data, the market, if you may, decided this was not a good value medication. Now, unfortunately, some of the guidelines that would create this value-based framework would still propose this as one of the treatments. I think the clinical experience and the data that we have, not only from trials, but from real-world data, would suggest that's not going to be the case. Thank you for that. So moving towards the last topic that we have here is also just looking at previous studies that you've conducted and written about. At one point, you proposed that the interference with market forces in order to lower the cost of prescription patented drugs will stymie innovation and disadvantage patients. Can you tell us a little bit about how you reached that conclusion, particularly in the case of multiple myeloma patients? Yes, it is not exclusive to myeloma. It really happens in any human endeavor that where there is an opportunity for growth and return on investment, there's a greater opportunity for growth and return of investment. And when you live in a field such as I do in multiple myeloma, where we have seen this large number of approvals, we have seen a flurry of companies and biotech come to the table and want to think about myeloma being a path for the approval of new medications. So there's been an incredibly high interest for companies to find ways by which they could develop clinical trials that would target the myeloma cells that somehow could lead to an FDA approval and could secure the future of that company. Now, at the end of the day, this only works if you have a good drug. You can't just be successful, and certainly you cannot do so in myeloma by just presenting smoke and mirrors. You need to have data that shows efficacy in the various stages of the clinical trials. And what happens with that is we have had, again, a countable number of clinical trials that are going on, the large number of approvals that I mentioned, the studies that are testing these combinations. But this flurry of activity only happens because there is that incentive of the return on investment. And I had an opportunity to debate this topic a couple of years ago at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And I told people in the audience, and I presume many of them were analysts, and I said, or investors, I said, if you were there, thank you. And the reason is you may have an agenda, but the net result is if we have more drugs and if we have better drugs for the treatment of multiple myeloma, it will be better for patients. So we will expand our horizons. Now, I told you about all the ones that are approved, and just over the past year, we have had approval of uh, conjugate and antibody, belantamab. We have an approval for another oral compound, Celinexor. And right behind that, there's other drugs that are already being considered for approval, melflufen. We have various immune approaches using CAR T-cells and bispecific antibodies, etc. So I hold the belief that if we continue in this trajectory, and as we learn how to better use these drugs, and part of that, again, will come back from the real-world data, that we will have a combination that will result in an even greater number of patients remaining disease-free for the long term. So we are a combination or a drug away from a large fraction of myeloma patients being cured. 
Now, if I were to go back 10 years, and because of the concerns back then, I would ask the question, what could have happened if 10 years ago, someone decided, boy, this is great. We're so happy for those in myeloma and for the patients, but we're just going to say that no new drug could cost more than whatever, $1,000 a month. I think it just stands to reason that we would have never seen the interest that we currently have. So in many ways, I think it works better that we just allow this sort of unorganized, somewhat spontaneous order that occurs with the market. Now, in the United States, we're often told, boy, you guys are terrible. You're not good negotiators and we can get the drugs for much less in our countries. Yes, but don't forget those drugs were developed because of a large contribution of the United States-based investment in biotechnology and drug development. I think about that. I don't make the comment in return, but I know very well that ultimately this becomes a gift for humanity, if you may, that once we have a drug that works, and I can use one of the many examples we have for multiple myeloma, which by the way, in years will become a generic medication that it will be produced for much less than what it needs to be charged during its first years of its patented life. That drug and that compound now becomes an evergreen solution for patients anywhere in the world. Some of these drugs are small molecules that can be produced on scents. And once they are available, and once the process of the patent expiration occurs, then they're going to be available to everyone. Now, there's a legitimate concern with what are the processes and how long does it take for something to become really off patent. And there's, of course, some market competition from some of these companies to retain patent for longer or some of these drugs. But the reality is ultimately everything becomes that generic. And I think of the analogy of a friend who just published a book, The Great American Drug Deal, which is he's Peter Kolchinsky. So Peter makes the analogy of saying, we have to think about these drugs, not like what we currently think about or how people project that we're paying rent, but we're actually paying a mortgage. And after a number of years, the mortgage is gone. So we're not paying anymore. The payment has been made and the benefit is there for the future. And I think that's what we want to do. So yeah, I do fear that if you were to introduce that artificial interference with market forces, you might not get the level or the speed or the depth of innovation that we currently have. And I have an example for this. This is not something I can say that I can tell you it's proof, but it certainly raises some hypothesis in my mind. It's certainly conjecture, but let me just present it to you. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, and maybe a little bit off on the dates, but when humans finally realized that you could replace kidney function with dialysis, that was a major achievement for medicine that you know, patients who had failing kidneys now could be kept alive by going in dialysis. But the dialysis machines and their services were very expensive. It was decided at the time that all the coverage for dialysis services would be best under Medicare. And this was absorbed by Medicare and has been fixed since. And I just think that obviously it starts with a very good reason. Back then it was very expensive. So that's a way that more people could have access to dialysis. But now, 50 years later, the dialysis of 2020 is not that different from that of the 1970s. And we have had relatively few drugs approved for the primary treatment of kidney disorders. So we have drugs that are approved for anemia associated with kidney disorders. There's, I think, one drug for polycystic kidney disease, uh, one for stones. There's for hemolytic viremic symptoms, but that's about it. There's very few drugs that are available or FDA approved for the treatment of primary kidney disorders. I wonder, and again, there's no way you can prove this, but I do wonder if that related to the incentives that were absent as this whole thing changed into the Medicare coverage for patients who had renal disorders. Now, fortunately, it's a rich field of investigation, but I just wonder if that had happened for cancer, which it could have. There could have been a point where some politician could have said, listen, cancer care is very expensive, so I think we should provide Medicare coverage to all cancer patients. And I asked myself, would we have the CAR T-cells of the world and the bispecifics and the imatinibs? Maybe, but maybe not. 
Wonderful. Thank you. We'll finish off on this one. And this is a question I've been eager to get your opinion on. You've written a lot about the challenges of determining the value of a drug. For our audience, how should we be thinking about value when it comes to that topic? That's a very good question. One for which I cannot provide a definitive answer, but I'd like to just propose the factors that need to be considered. So the value, there's multiple formulas to come together and try to define value. Of course, it's just the set of benefits, which in other realms would include outcomes, quality and service divided by cost. But in how do we define value for, let's say, a cancer drug? We have to think about the benefits that come from that. And the benefits are twofold. One is those that we can measure and that we can quantify, and then there are the imponderable benefits. And I get back to those in a second. And those that are beneficial, I think, need to be considered understanding factors such as what is the net benefit of this, not only now and not only for whatever months that drug might prolong the disease, but then what happens five 10 and 15 years later. And again, putting a plug in there for real world data, right? Because if you have a treatment that is very expensive now, let's say it's exorbitantly expensive right now, but results in great health resource utilization savings down the line, boy, that may be a great value. If you have this treatment for blindness that costs a million dollars, million dollars is nothing of what you're going to have in decrement on income and economic value for someone who has limited eyesight. And you might say that's great value, right? So we have to look at all of that. I would argue that we have to look at it again, and just repeating what I said before, not only for the immediate period, but for what happens afterwards and the value, for instance, of this cost of progression. Now there's value too as well as it relates and benefits as it relates to the toxicity. So you might have two treatments that have exactly the same outcomes with regards to disease control, but one has much lower toxicity. There is a tremendous value for that. And that may be in the border between what you can measure or not. But let me give you an example. We use this drug, lenalidomide, also known as Rebomid, which is the second generation in the thalidomide class of drugs. Thalidomide almost universally causes peripheral neuropathy. Lenalidomide, very rarely. So the question is, how do you bring that into an equation? Even if the second drug is better, by the way, lenalidomide, but even if you were telling me they're the same with regards to efficacy, well, they're the same, but your patients that are living long-term are not going to have neuropathy versus those that do. That would be number two. Now, number three, for those imponderables, I already alluded to before about the things we can do and the emotional aspect of being alive, being able to be with our families. I would say that we have something else that we don't talk often and something we have seen in myeloma, which is what we call the value of options. So if I can give you a treatment, that the treatment is going to prolong the disease control for five years, there's intrinsic value of those five years that you get extra for disease control. But also there's value in that five years from now, we may have drugs or treatments that we don't have available right now. So a whole set of new options opens up for patients as they think about how we're going to treat the disease. So I tell my patients now, I don't know how I'm going to be treating multiple myeloma in 2030. And there's a good chance that someone's going to go through stem cell transplant will be around for 2030 now. So it opens a whole range of new opportunities that are just currently not existent that are going on through the process of clinical trials. Now, on the under part of that equation, under cost, we already alluded to the fact that you have to look at the real cost and real world data sets can help us in that regard. Not only at the list price, who pays for the list price of cars in the lot? No one does. So we have to look at the rebates. This is complicated, of course, because there's some secrecy in the negotiations that occur between payers and the manufacturers of what's the proper rebate. But also, again, we have to keep this in mind. This is not a one-time thing. As time goes on, as these medications convert into generics, then the equation becomes obviously of even greater value value. 
Now, I don't think anyone has the formula that can tell you this is the validated and the only formula that would work. But I think the honest way to go about this is to have this comprehensive discussion of all of those factors. I really didn't even cover all of them, but I hope this just exemplifies how there are many more things to consider just at the list price of a medication. And just to finish on this topic, I'll tell you, I personally don't like the idea of the use of some of the metrics that we have, such as the quality. The quality, which is often used to determine the value of an intervention and the determination whether it's cost effective. It is a formula that was designed and again, absent other proposals and other formulas and has been extensively used in the literature to make assessments about cost effectiveness. But it turns out, I think it's flawed and primarily flawed because of the sort of ethical considerations. And probably the main one is that if you look at quality, the quality introduces a variable that would say that your life after a treatment, and especially if the treatment is toxic or produces some toxicity, somehow is less valuable just from the economic perspective. They're not telling that to the person, but they're saying it is less valuable and some would argue the drug is less valuable. But the reality is for many cancer patients, so I'll just keep it at focus on cancer. For many cancer patients, the value of their days and their weeks after a diagnosis becomes far more precious than before they were conducting their sort of normal life activities because they're keenly aware of what's going to happen in their lives and whether there is a possibility they'll make it to one of these landmark events that they would like to see. I'll just conclude by saying it's a very nuanced assessment that needs to be made when we start talking about value, and it should never be left at the level of cost only. Dr. Fonseca, thank you so much. This has been a wildly informative episode. I have a a pad full of notes that I plan to go follow up on and expand on. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to our audience being able to give this a listen. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And just one quick comment. It's a good problem to have, right? You don't have this problem when you don't have innovation. I used to say tongue in cheek, and forgive me for those of you who hear this if you don't like this, but I used to say that evidence-based medicine is a luxury of medical fields without innovation. It's not true because obviously we want to follow those tenets always, but the reality is when things move at such a fast speed as they do and as they're doing right now in the field of myeloma, you really have to be ready to make decision with the best available data. And that sometimes might be in the form of this real world data. I often think of this story that was written by the Argentinian poet and writer Borges. And he talks about this individual who was a cartographer. He was hired by the king to develop a map of the kingdom. And this map was the first draft and it was not good enough and so forth. And it just goes to the point that the map was so precise that at the end of it all, they couldn't tell what was map and what was reality. And that's how real world data might play a role in some of these things, because we understand it has some limitations. It doesn't have some of the beautiful aspects of the randomization, but at the same time, it is the real world. And that's, I think, the best approach we have is to recognize those limitations, but have the integration and ultimately for the betterment of patients. I agree. Thank you very much for that. Thank you again for your time. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in and joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. Talk to you soon and be well. Thank you again, Dr. Francesca. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk. 